Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about castration, genital cutting, and briefly pedophilia and child sexual abuse. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, what does it mean to be emasculated? When you think of the word emasculation, what comes to mind? I think most of us think about it metaphorically, like some sort of challenge to a man's masculinity. For example, men might feel emasculated if they were humiliated in public, or if they experience a loss of agency, or is seen as being controlled by a woman. There are lots of sexist and femphobic underpinnings to these beliefs, but that's a topic for another episode. My guest today, Dr. Richard Wassersug, is here to talk about physical emasculation. He studies people who have their testes removed, who want to have their testes removed, or who have been chemically castrated by blocking their testosterone. On this episode, we tackle all sorts of questions about physical emasculation. What happens when you take a biological male and make him a eunuch? Who are modern-day eunuchs and eunuch wannabes? What happens when you take away a person's testosterone? What does it do to their sexuality, to their bodies, to their brains? And how does prostate cancer fit into all this? That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... Dr. Wassersug will introduce himself shortly, but here's an introduction from my perspective. I first met today's guest in 2011, shortly after I moved to New Brunswick. At that time, Richard was a professor in the medical school at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he worked for decades. When he found out a new hormone researcher was in the Maritimes, he reached out to me and suggested we meet. We met for lunch in Halifax a short while later and talked for almost three hours straight. I had paid for 90 minutes of parking, but I was so engrossed in our conversation that I forgot all about it. Fortunately, I didn't get a parking ticket. However, I did gain a friend. Richard and I have been friends and collaborators ever since. Richard is the most research-focused and possibly the most extroverted person I have ever met. He's always theorizing and his brain is always on researcher mode. I'm not sure if there is any other mode. He retired years ago, but then started a prostate cancer support program and continued and maybe even ramped up his research output. I honestly don't think his mind is capable of retiring. When I'm in Vancouver, where he now lives, we often get together to discuss and debate our overlapping scholarly interests, usually revolving around hormones and social influences on gender roles. As an extrovert, he often jokes he can't think without talking, and I love talking research with him. We don't always see eye to eye, but we have great discussions. Richard has been one of my greatest mentors and supporters since I became a professor. He's also been one of the greatest supporters of this podcast. I'm so grateful to have him as a friend, and I'm thrilled to share a glimpse of his mind and his research with you today. So without further ado, here's Richard Wasserside. I am an honorary professor uh, in the medical school at the um, University of British Columbia, Um, and I am a a biologist um, who does research in a whole variety of different areas, one of them of which is emasculation. 
And we're here today to talk about emasculation, and we'll see where the, all the different directions that takes us. But let's start out with you. How did you get into studying emasculation? Ah, that is a good and personal question. Um, so it turns out that um, I am a prostate cancer patient. I'm doing fine. Uh, I got the the, uh, the cancer diagnosis over 20 years ago, um, and um, I failed the primary treatments that would have been curative. And in that situation, uh, the standard treatment for prostate cancer that has not been cured is what they call androgen deprivation therapy, uh, which is uh, typically in North America, chemical castration. Early on, I knew something about the history of castration or emasculation um, and started reading about it in terms of, for instance, eunuchs in history. So the emasculation formally means uh, to remove or uh, cause the testicles to shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, this can be done surgically through a orchiectomy, which is the medical term for removing the uh, testicles, or it can be done chemically. And for prostate cancer patients, it's done chemically. And uh, I just got curious with a sort of a black sense of humor about, well, okay, I'm on these drugs. But, you know, people were, were castrated in the past. Most prostate cancer patients don't like that term or use that term. But I started reading about it, and I realized there was a whole fascinating area of different populations in the past and uh, even now that are emasculated for a whole variety of different reasons uh, and that studying them could actually be uh, indirectly a way of understanding masculinity itself. That is, if you want to know what is masculinity, uh, if you remove it, then you have a way of understanding what is, what, uh, what is emasculation by looking at the changes that are, are brought on by, by essentially by emasculation. So I, I'm very much concerned about the care and welfare of the prostate cancer patients, but as an academic area, I study emasculation in a variety of other populations. Very interesting. So as someone who was chemically castrated through because of prostate cancer treatments, you started going down this journey of castration broadly and emasculation broadly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when you give lectures, for example, on emasculation, how do people respond? What do people think emasculation is? Because I think most people don't really fully understand from the angle that you're looking at it. Well, I, I love that question, particularly with a show, do we know things? Because it's fascinating to see how people understand or misunderstand the term. And I have been absolutely intrigued by the uh, the answers I've gotten. So once uh, for a uh, small school back in Halifax, I gave a talk to a women's studies class and I asked at the beginning, so I study emasculation. What does it mean to be emasculated? And hands went up and uh, one of the first comments was, it meant to de deny women political power, hmm. which was uh, from a gendered studies, women's studies program, I suppose, is, a, is an answer. Uh, a more common answer I get is uh, pedophiles, sexual predators are castrated. Um, and in fact, that is uh, very rare in the Western world and only under very uh, limited circumstances. Uh, the correct answer, unfortunately, although that, that is uh, advanced prostate cancer patients or, or prostate cancer patients who go on these drugs, although, again, they don't look at it that way. And, and of course, there's, there are um, the male-to-female transsexuals uh, are going to have um, a, a castration as part of their surgical transitioning. So all of those are emasculated populations. Uh, I'm curious, though, do people ever, because to me, before I met you and before we started talking about emasculation, 
I always thought of it as more of a psychological concept. So the idea that you are emasculated means that someone has undermined your masculinity in some way. But from your perspective and the technical official perspective, it really is about having your testicles removed. That this is the issue about terms that are used both metaphorically mm-hmm. uh, and terms that are used literally. And what's happened, of course, with terms like emasculation, uh, castration, to say someone's a eunuch now um, doesn't necessarily mean that they were a prostate cancer patient who had uh, who's on androgen deprivation therapy because it has such a, a valence, uh, the term. Uh, so some of these terms are understood used far more commonly in a metaphorical sense. Mm-hmm. And to say someone's emasculated, I would say, is exactly that. I mean, to say that someone has, you hear the expression, that guy has no balls. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, does he have testicles? He probably does. <laughs> okay, so we use the term far more metaphorically uh, than anatomically. But I did start as an anatomist, so um, I, I consider both. And I try to, try to make sure we understand when we're, when we're talking about metaphors and when we're talking about anatomical structures. Right. And so your study of historical eunuchs led you to some modern day eunuchs. What can you tell us about eunuchs outside of prostate cancer patients or including prostate cancer patients as well? All right. So that, that's absolutely fascinating. And that was a, a direction which I didn't imagine myself going. Uh, and that research goes back, starts about 15 years ago, because as I started reading about eunuchs, I was online and I came across an adult uh, chat groups, sites for eunuch wannabes, mm. people who wanted to be castrated. And, and who were they? And um, I set up a, a little question. Well, I ran into a guy who was ac- actually asked the question online, uh, why do you want to be castrated? And I contacted him, found out that, in fact, he, uh, he had answers from 11 people who had been castrated voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up publishing a paper. And I thought it was astonishing that we had a sample size of 11. That's led to other, in these last uh, decade or so, other studies where we got up to over 100, then we got up to over 300. So we, we know they're real. There are modern-day individuals who do wish to be emasculated. And then, of course, there's why and what are the outcomes and uh, what are the side effects of how, how it's done, if it's surgical or, or uh, chemical and so forth. So that's a whole other area that I'm studying. And these are, in fact, voluntary modern-day eunuchs. They are not in the typical sense of transgender, because we usually think of transgender as fitting something of a gender or sexual binary. That is, if a male wishes not to be a male, we think that he must wish to be a female. I mean, that would be the sort of a, a, a standard popular trans narrative. But these individuals don't wish to be females. They just wish to be emasculated. Mm-hmm. I'm still involved with a variety of studies. We published a slew of papers on the, what are the risk factors for ending up in that situation? What are the outcomes? And uh, it realized, I realize now that there's actually subpopulations within the population of individuals who seek emasculation. So I can say there were sort of three populations. There are those who really feel condemned by their sexuality. That is, they would be like to be doing something else with their brain than thinking about sex. <laughs> and uh, they realize that if they got rid of their testicles or their testosterone, uh, their sex drive would go down massively, and it would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- some of those people actually have a religious motivation. So if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 19 talks about, actually has this bizarre um, text which says there are those who are born eunuchs, 
those who are made eunuchs by men and those who choose to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And actually, early Christianity had had sex or, or uh, a philosophy that maybe the way to get mental purity, if I can use that sort of made-up term, uh, was to get rid of your testicles. Uh, St. Augustine challenged that, and, and we don't have castrated priests in, in Christianity these days. So some people might have said there may be advantage of that. If we had that, who knows? But um, this idea of I got to send my sexuality. If I'm going to either get to heaven or get to a better life and be able to do what I think the way I want to think, I got to get rid of my testicles. So that would be the major group. But there are also people who actually have a body dysmorphia. Mm. Um, and this is really rather r- r- rare. But you do hear about it, individuals who think that their life will be better if they can cut off a foot. Mm-hmm. Turns out that uh, a fairly large percentage of the people who are of this form feel that, that they're happy with their hormonal profile, uh, but that stuff hanging between their legs looks odd and just shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. So that's a body dysmorphia. And then there's a third group, which I don't have a good sense for, but this is people who are into a severe um, a stream. And a severe is a little is judgmental. It's extreme. Um, sadomasochism okay. and masochistic. And uh, they, um, it turns out that some of the individuals who are voluntarily castrated are happy to go around and offer their services to castrate other individuals. Uh, and this gets in the report of the news every few years about um, uh, somebody who's offering their service to do, to, yeah, do castrations for other people. And when we survey them, they tend to have an exceptionally large number of uh, tattoos, piercings, uh, and they have, may have other body modifications. Split dick is one of them, etc. I mean, that is the extreme uh, piercings, general piercings, and so forth. So they're into some heavy-duty body mod, and they typically go back on testosterone. They're happy with their testosterone profile. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if anything, they may be more aggressive, even though they had their actual testicles removed. Wow. Uh, because, because of, again, their supplemental hormonal profiles. Okay, so it's for them. It's not about the hormonals because they are supplementing. Okay, Um, I just want to double check. I think you said there were four groups. So one is uh, three within the voluntary units that we can see people who wish to be caster. The fourth fourth groups of people who are who are who have an absolute need for other reasons, be they transsexuals or prostate cancer patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, uh, let me let me give example. When we early on, you asked about who. Who do they think gets emasculated as sexual predators? Um, it turns out that society thinks that, uh, in many people in society, can't speak for all of society, I think that sexual predators or recidivist sexual predators for sure should be castrated. It turns out that uh, the data show that some states allow chemical castration for um, recidivist sexual predators, mm-hmm. uh, but the rules are not consistent. And in many cases, it's actually harder for those people to get the drugs oh. uh, to go on them than it is. Uh, they, they're not necessarily happy uh, with their, with their you know, sexual predation or whatever got them, into, into, got them incarcerated. But there's a sort of sense that, that wait a second, that's not fair. That we give you a, a chemical solution to your deviant behavior, we would rather you suffer wow. <laughs> and try to will your way out of it. So uh, I find it's imp- impressive that, that there are more people, at least when a study was done out of Texas, who are actually seeking uh, a chemical solution to sexual improprieties that were ruining their lives. Uh, we're having, actually finding it more difficult to get. So anyway, there's a whole, there are three primary groups of voluntary modern-day eunuchs. 
Um, our estimates are that probably seven to 10,000 voluntary Unix in North America right now. Um, and one of the big issues, uh, and, and I'll stop after this and let you ask some questions so I don't monologue, but uh, one of the big issues is where can they get the service? Mm-hmm. Because unfortunately, uh, even though there's increasing numbers of clinical programs to serve the trans population, uh, the presumption is that if you have gender dysphoria, uh, then you wish to be female. And if you simply say, I don't want to be female, I just want my testicles removed, uh, there's not that many physicians, uh, urologists, or surgeons, whatever, who will do the, do the procedure. There's an increasing number, but still, uh, it's an unserved population. Right. And so you're saying they're doing it themselves or getting other castratees to do it for them. How, how do they get castrations done for those who do go through with it? This is uh, a challenge. So my colleague, uh, Tom Johnson, who's a, a, a cultural anthropologist, and we published a lot together in, in our studies of voluntary unique populations. They did a sur- Well, we did a survey, uh, and it turns out that over half of those who have had a, a voluntary orchiectomy, either self-castrated or had it done by an underground cutter, uh, um, on sites, and there's a site called unica.org. You can look it up. Uh, this is where people who are fascinated with castration or wish to you know, discuss it and have fantasies and want to post them to tell people. Occasionally, people show up there offering their services and they're scared away. That site is not interested in promoting uh, illegal uh, castrations. But as of about five years ago, the majority, over 50% of the castrations were done illegally. The other, po- other pathways include pretending you are a transgender pr- individual who wishes to be female. You go through the first stage of the surgery, you get your orchectomy, and you don't come back. Mm. Uh, uh, and that there's some, a paper published in the last year out of the Netherlands showing that there is an increasing number of people who are showing up at their clinic seeking an orchectomy who don't come back for the rest of the surgery. So we know they're real. I mean, uh, very much so. Uh, but we, the unic.org community does not, I say we, because I help them in some ways and they help us with our surveys, but, uh, we do not condone underground cutters. Mm -hmm. This is just real bad news. There's all sorts of scenarios though, of how you can get castrated. There are individuals who will inject toxins into their testicles, alcohol, calcium chloride or, or various toxins and then they they uh if in, in pain or whatever they show up in the emergency room they find a a, a fibrous lump in the testicle the, the doctors think the person has a testicular tumor mm. and they get their castration done uh, and then in this cases of these people reporting uh, i felt terribly embarrassed that they were the doctor was terribly upset because he was sure i had a testicular tumor and, and i didn't have any and i got castrated uh, but I didn't tell them that I that I had been injecting, you know, alcohol vodka into my uh, testicle. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> that there is this population of people who are clearly seeking this surgery, and that because it isn't deemed a, a normal or appropriate thing to do, the medical establishment generally is not providing this service. But then, of course, they put themselves under risk by engaging in all sorts of hazardous behaviors. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is certainly a theme for the work that I'm doing with with my anthropology colleagues and other people. I've had students and so forth on these various studies, uh, but it is to get these people recognized and get them proper proper medical care so they don't have to see themselves as working in the underground. And there's, there's other is- issues along those lines. Uh, they wish to be asexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a recent paper I saw uh, in the Canadian Journal of Human Sexuality on asexuality and talked about how uh, to be asexual in our society is um, considered um, 
inappropriate, mm. uh, whether you're dealing with the cis population or the trans population. I mean, you're, we have all of these sex and gender minorities it's a, as if that's somehow one group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the asexuals see themselves as not part of that group. So anybody who wishes to be asexual and doesn't fit a cis or a trans common narrative, okay, doesn't fit in, in the, the mindset of anyone. And in fact, I, I mean, I, I think you, you know this, I'm, I'm actually an evolutionary biology, biologist and realize that evolution is about reproduction. And the idea that someone wishes to uh, not be reproductive uh, is uh, sort of unnatural. But on the other hand, if it's destroying their lives, or their psychological profile is so bad that they could be destroying other people's lives, uh, then, and with the plan that's pretty well populated right now, uh, they should have the option, uh, I would say, of, of uh, shutting down their testicles or removing them. Mm-hmm. Do you think in that case, if someone is concerned about harm to themselves or others, that chemical castration or the the medications that are given to potentially pred- sexual predators and also prostate cancer patients, is that a viable option? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, there are a whole variety of different populations who are on these same drugs. So, for instance, I'm a, a, an author on a book on androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer patients. And these same drugs are the ones that are, are where it's uh, offered to um, recidivist sexual predators. Of it. These are the same drugs. And the same drugs that are used for puberty blockers for uh, adolescent transsexuals. So they're all the same drugs, and uh, we do need to know their long-term effects. But we also know that, they're, that it, they are, can be used short-term. So clearly, uh, we favor uh, um, anybody who thinks that they want to be off of testosterone, they go on these drugs before they uh, uh, inject vodka into their testicles because mm-hmm. they can stop uh, and still have functional testicles. The other part of that is that it would be diagnostic. So, for instance, if a person says, I hate my, my testicles and my scrotum, we don't know whether it's because they hate the product of the testicles or they hate the appearance. Mm-hmm. If they hate testosterone's effect on their body and you give them an anti-testosterone agent, uh, these drugs like Lupron, uh, these, um, that crash your testosterone, and they feel better, then we know that it that was really they hated the testosterone. Mm-hmm. If you gave them the drugs and they still look down at their body and says, I don't like that stuff, uh, I, I, I don't feel any better at all, then you know that they have a body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. So, so we much favor uh, a, a medical, a pharmacological exploration mm-hmm. uh, before one goes for a surgical uh, exploration or activity, or an intervention, I should say. Absolutely. And I know you've done studies through eunuch.org about predictors of what what leads to people wanting to be eunuchs or wanting to be castrated. And I know you've mentioned there's three different kinds, but I also know there's one of those things is religiosity. So that's a predictor. But what are some of the other predictors that you see? Done several studies. Um, Five things come up. One is growing up in a really religious household. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, which presumably in Protestant religious household, which would have condemned sexuality. Two, having been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. So if you grow up in a small town, go to church, and your you know, sexuality is bad, meanwhile, the, the priest or the, the reverend or whoever invites you over to his house for oral sex or something like that, uh, you could be terribly conflicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, growing up in a small town seemed to be a, a bias. 
Hmm. Uh, having witnessed animal castrations. So in order to end up in this sphere, you have to know what castration is. Right. Right. Uh, so um, religiosity, having grown, uh, been uh, exposed to childhood sexual abuse, uh, sexual orientation comes up. A, a lot, there's almost as many people in the eunuch.org community who are gay and st- as straight, mm-hmm. but there's a surprisingly large number that report, report being bisexual. Okay. But the, the last one is having been threatened by castration by a parental or adult figure. So you're, you live in a farm in a small religious town in, in rural America, in a red United States America or wherever. Um, they, condemn ca- they condemn sexuality, but you, they, 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 you get to see them castrate farm animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then someone says jokingly, if you don't behave, I'm going to cut that off. And mom, we have cases and quotes from patients. Mom found me playing with my penis when I was seven years old in the bathtub and told me that if I did that again, she's going to cut it off. Then you get towards puberty. You have your first sexual thoughts. And the first thing you think about is castration. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it flips from being a, a credible fear to even being a paraphilic interest. Right. And you brutalize your testicles because you both hate your cast sexuality and um, it's your sexual allure, arousal. Mm-hmm. And um, it's rough. Um, and we see this. Uh, but they don't. these people don't necessarily get castrated at, at the age of, you know, then of, of, of 14, 18, whatever. The, the average age of castration is around 40s or 50s. Hmm. However, when you look at the number of risk factors, um, it's, it's around 40 if you have two or three. Mm-hmm. It goes down to 30 if you have four. It goes down to the 20s if you have five. Mm-hmm. So um, these things all add up. Um, right. And uh, so I think there's a group that, have, that, that need, need, uh, need ha- uh, help sounds too patronizing. Uh, they, they need to be recognized as the first mm-hmm. step to uh, opening up pathways for them to, to get interventions that don't leave them having uh, brutalized their own body right. or having brought into the emergency room bleeding so badly. And these are real cases that come up often enough right. uh, because of the uh, self-castration. So as an expert in androgen deprivation therapy, I know you have studied the psychological and physical effects of taking these drugs that essentially chemically castrate people. One of the things that you've been a real advocate for is bringing this education to prostate cancer patients or other people who would take these drugs. So what are the effects of chemically castrating an individual? That, of course, is a huge question. And that's what I mean. That was a major moment in my own life is that when I went on these drugs, <clears throat> I, they were, the effects were quite different than what I expected, um, and the literature was not very helpful. So what did you expect? <laughs> well, I, I knew, and I, got, I panicked, uh, sort of. I, they could have cognitive effects. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I won't remember my name. I won't be able uh. to lecture. I won't be able to, uh, uh, to uh, I'll, my career will be over. And I've seen prostate cancer patients who have said that. Interestingly enough, it depends. That really depends on what their field is. Uh, so, a person who the, the people I think who have the hardest time are are people who are still young in their career. Mm-hmm. Prostate cancer is usually diagnosed around sixty five. So, if you are a a, a coder, a computer coder, mm-hmm. uh, and you, if you do any computer coding, you know that you're moving text all around. It's it's a visual spatial activity. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they seem to find, from what I see, and this is anecdotal, have a, the hardest time. Okay. Uh, but I found that the, the biggest problem I had was, cognitively, was with visual spatial processing. And uh, men have different visual spatial processing, in, if you allow me some stereotypes here, uh, than women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some good studies on this, and they are testosterone dependent to a certain extent. Um, guys will do these, the, you know, these, these little metal games where you have pictures of blocks linked up in all different patterns and then rotated, and you've got to see mm-hmm. which is the rotation. Typically, men do better on that than others, than women, excuse me, than, than women. Uh, if you do uh, the game concentration where you take a deck of cards, you turn them all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the age of seven, women do better than men on finding the pairs. They they look for spatial patterns up close. Men have this sort of grand idea. I'm making. Some I just want Yeah, I was going to say. I'll just jump in and say that these are on average. There's on always average, overlap. Absolutely, <laughs> these are massively general stereotypes. And I want to make, <laughs> make sure that everybody knows that. But I'm very proud <laughs> that I'm being interviewed here by a, a scientist. Um, th- that said, I found the hardest things of all were were visual spatial stuff. So mm-hmm. the computer games that I like to do, I couldn't do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that I'd better clean up my desk because these things matter in real life. If you have piles of paper on your desk, uh, the phone rings or whatever, you pick up, you move something, and all of a sudden what was on the top is now somewhere in the stack, and you can't remember where it is. And there was a moment where I walked out of a sh- shopping mall, big shopping mall down in the States with you know parking lot, but was large and huge, and I couldn't remember where my car was. And I was, and I was still in my fifties, and I was thinking, "Oh God, I'm going, you know, senile already." And then I thought, "Well, maybe it's the drugs." Right. So testosterone can affect visual spatial processing to some extent. Mm-hmm. Other things that are real and we have to be concerned about for the patients and for the voluntary eunuchs is is depression. Mm-hmm. So uh, depression appears to be a, a fairly serious risk factor for prostate cancer patients on these drugs. But of course, having prostate cancer that may not be cured can be depressing unto itself. Right. Interesting enough, the voluntary eunuchs who got castrated uh, do not show nearly the same amount of depression. And it may be that their life was so miserable by the testosterone that getting off the testosterone alleviated some of the depression. Right. Okay, so there's that level of complexity. But there's all sorts of other things as well that are concerned for the different populations who go on these agents. Osteoporosis. It turns out that when women go through menopause, they're at increased risk of osteoporosis. When guys on these go on these drugs, they are similarly at increased risk of osteoporosis. And there's been discussions now about the uh, possible risk of, tra- of adolescent transgender folks who go on them as puberty blocking agents as to mm-hmm. whether this is going to affect the uh, mineralization, mineralization of their skeletal system and whether they may be at risk of weaker bones. Right. Weaker bones alone is not a problem. Weaker bones, if you fall down, is a problem because you're more likely to break them. Right. And prostate cancer patients on these, on these drugs are at higher risk and do have a higher uh, uh, bone fracture rate, fracture rate. So those are just some of the side effects. And of course, there's got to be loss of sexual interest Mm-hmm. And, and that is a, a huge problem, not just for some of the guys, uh, but if they have a, pay, a partner uh, and their partner appreciates the attention that comes from sexual interest uh, mm-hmm. and the patient loses the interest, now his problem has become the, the partner's problem. Mm-hmm. Our book on androgen deprivation therapy uh, discusses all that because we're concerned not just about the patients, but the partners. Mm-hmm. Because there's one thing they can't do, and that is if they keep up their level of physical exercise, that could help fight off uh, the depression. Uh, It could help keep the bones strong. And these drugs can cause 
a loss of muscle mass. Mm. Uh, so it can help them maintain muscle mass. These drugs can cause some anemia in men, um, and it can help fight that off. So we, we have a program that's it's, it's the, uh, the androgen deprivation educational program. Uh, you can post the link on your website. Sure. Another couple of side effects I wanted to mention about the drugs are the the feminization of the body. Okay, fair uh, enough. That's that's a very important point because, in fact, uh, and I make this, uh, and I think it's a big, if it's a one one may sort of take home message, uh, emasculation is not feminization. Right. Uh, um, so the feminizing side effects of these drugs are particularly loss of muscle mass, loss of body hair, hot flashes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually due, interestingly enough, to loss of the female hormone estradiol, because it turns out guys have that hormone, but we make it from our testosterone. Right. So we go into mon- menopause if we go on these drugs. Mm-hmm. Depending on the drugs that are used, there can be some breast development, mm-hmm. but, but that's not the typically the common ones. The one that we had mentioned earlier was Lupron, and that drug has not very much uh, breast development. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that. But um, you can also, there's a study going on in the UK, because you could use for androgen deprivation therapy, high-dose estrogen. Right, okay? yes. And because uh, either hormone, uh, that is est- testosterone or estrogen, when it comes to the brain, can signal we get too much of this stuff, shut the system down. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, at the, at the points where the, this happens in the brain, the brain doesn't care whether it's estrogen or testosterone coming in. Mm-hmm. So we can shut the whole system down by a surge of estrogen. Uh, and I, um, the, there are pictures of me on the internet. I'm fully bearded. If I, as an adult, if you go on, if you get emasculated as an adult, chemically or surgically, you don't lose facial hair. You don't use, lose pubic hair. You lose the hair on your arms, your legs, your, your torso. Um, your voice doesn't go up. Mm-hmm. That happens mm-hmm. in puberty. That's not reversible. And the drugs like Lupron, these really do crash crash the sex drive. Interesting, interestingly enough, the estrogen doesn't crash as much. Mm. So, it, you, paradoxically, a male on estrogen can retain some of his sex drive more than if he's off of the estrogen. So, this is how complicated it gets. And in fact, one of my co-authors is uh, Dr. Eric Orboa, who's now uh, in uh, in New Zealand, and and. Uh, I was astonished because I actually tried estradiol, mm-hmm. uh, high dose for ADT, and found that my sex drive and my cognitive awareness and so forth seemed to be going back to normal. I felt more normal as a prostate cancer patient on estradiol than I did on Lupron. Right. Uh, and I said, well, this is too amazing. This can't, I didn't even know if this is true. And Eric came and joined me as a graduate student. We castrated male rats. We gave man back estrogen. We showed that estrogen could preserve male sex drive in a castrated rodent. I mean, so I'm very, I'm very proud of the fact that we could go back and do basic research because, of course, uh, the, the rodent has no idea what's happening to it, I assume. And so right. it, it certainly is not concerned that he's not going to get to heaven uh, because he has a sex drive. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, I'm not doing that type of basic research now, but I think it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about the physical changes and the cognitive changes that happen for an individual. But I know for many people, there are also cognitive changes in terms of perception of others and also emotional changes that occur when taking Lupron or Estradiol. What was your experience? Um, when I was on off of testosterone, and I am now, uh, when I was off of testosterone, I found myself far more attentive to facial expressions of other people. I, mm. it was a, there was a moment in my life where I realized I, that I, I hadn't noticed that before, but of 
I think I, I think what I said did not make that that person comfortable, and and I decided if I'm out of this, I I got to be more attentive to this, and I found myself far more attentive hmm. to uh, facial expressions. Uh, so when I went off of testosterone, I found myself I could, could cry in movies. Now, I, for a male, that defeats a male stereotype. If you have that level of sensitivity, then you can start to think, what can I do about this, hmm. as opposed to getting angry about it. So I do think getting off of testosterone does change one's cognitive processing, but I think it really comes down to whether you're going to be uh, animalistic and reflexively um, uh, reactive, uh, what I call it, reactive um, uh, masculinity. Mm-hmm. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard Wassersug, for being here today. It was a delight to talk to you as usual. It's an honor. And uh, uh, I don't know if you're going to tell people this, but we've had a chance to collaborate and it has been truly an honor to work with you, Dr. Hamilton. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you found that interview as fascinating as I did. Before I met Richard, I had never considered eunuchs in the modern world. If you had asked me what comes to mind when I hear the word eunuch, I would say harem guards or castrati opera singers. I knew about chemical castration, but only thought of it in terms of sex offenders. Sexuality and hormones are two of my own areas of research expertise, but there's always more to learn. For me, learning about self-identified eunuchs and prostate cancer patients on androgen deprivation therapy has really broadened my thinking about sexuality and hormones. I hope it does the same for you. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script and a transcript for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings, and you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. DoWeKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.